Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, you can open to John 13. We'll look at verses 1 through 17 this morning. The text is also printed on the next page of the bulletin for you, John 13. So I mentioned in uh, the email newsletter this week that I sent out uh, a few days ago, mentioned having visited a church building <clears throat> where, um, where inside, in the front of the sanctuary, so the thing that everybody would be staring at when you're all sitting there, uh, in the front of the sanctuary there was a giant mural of Jesus watch it, washing his disciples' feet, which is our passage this morning. Um, Maybe we're used to seeing things like crosses up front. There's a cross here. It's covered by the flowers uh, here on the pulpit. But we're used to seeing crosses in the front of a church, right? Evangelical Protestant churches, that's sort of normal for us. It's primarily meant to call to mind Christ's atoning work for us. It symbolizes uh, his work for us to save us, right, at the cross. So the cross is where he died to forgive our sins and reconcile us to God. And that's the heart of the Christian gospel message, so we're used to seeing that depicted in places for us up front, but this building belonged to a uh, Unitarian Universalist congregation. Maybe it took some liberty telling, telling you it was a church building, uh, <clears throat> but uh, it's a group that they began as liberal Christians, uh, and their mo- main focus is service. And Jesus is now just one of several good role models for people to imitate when it comes to service. He's not really special. He's not really absolutely unique. Uh, not our savior, so to speak, but a good role model, a good example for us. And what better example to follow than Jesus washing his disciples' feet? Why not have that be a big mural up in the front of your sanctuary, and it sort of defines the faith of your congregation? Truly, Jesus says it himself. He gave us an example here. That's what we're going to hear him say in this passage this morning. He gave us an example. He says we should do like he did. And there is no better example of true humanity, of a real servant in all the world. But seeing Jesus only, or even primarily, as an example to follow, um, has actually ripped the heart out of the faith for Unitarian Universalists, at least, uh, among others, Uh, so that now they don't even really identify as Christian anymore. You can be a Unitarian Universalist and be a Christian or an atheist or a Buddhist or anything. Anything goes. Um, Anybody can belong. Anybody can find welcome as a good Unitarian Universalist just so long as they're trying to live a good life according to their seven principles, which they hold as strong values and moral guides. So basically... If you become a humble servant, like Jesus or others who've gone before us, good people to imitate, if you become a humble servant, then you'll be okay. You'll be okay. It's their version of salvation. You do what we say, you do what we think is right, and then you're in. You're one of us, and you're safe. You can feel good about yourself. But they've actually gotten it in entirely the wrong order. It's, It's actually appropriate for them no longer to identify as Christian because the Christian order is first salvation. And that's something God does for us, something Jesus does for us, not something we can ever do for ourselves. First it's salvation by his grace, and then it's a changed life. First you belong to Jesus 
and among his people. First you belong, and then you become like Jesus. To truly know Jesus, as he has offered himself up for our relational knowledge of him in the scriptures, to truly know Jesus and to share in his life, you have to get this order right before we have him as our exemplar. We must have him as our savior. First we must receive from him, and then we can respond to him. First we trust Jesus, then we obey Jesus. First it's salvation, then imitation. He says so right here when he washes his disciples' feet. That's what we'll talk about this morning, getting, getting the new order right according to Jesus. So <clears throat> let's pray, then we'll read scripture. <clears throat> Father, we pray that you would be merciful on each one of us now. Send your spirit to transform our minds through uh, the renewing that comes through the reading of your word and the hearing of your word and the consideration of your word. Would you make us new in the image of Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right. For so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should, you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So here we are. um, We're getting into the second main part of John's gospel. Chapter 13 uh, now is uh, the beginning of what's known as the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse. When Jesus is uh, with his chosen disciples, this is not his public ministry anymore. He's sort of withdrawn to be with his chosen disciples. He's privately teaching them and preparing them for um, what will be a tumultuous time 
uh, his imminent death and his resurrection and his ascension into heaven and what comes after that. Uh, Jesus is keenly aware now that his time has come. Uh, and what he does now, John characterizes as love, loving his own. He isn't just showing them how to live. He's loving them. He's doing something to them. And he's doing something for them. And he pours himself into them. He pays close attention to them. He opens himself up to them. He is intimate with them. And he serves them. And he looks to offer them words of comfort in the face of the coming pain and confusion. Everything Jesus has done to this point is characterized by love, John says in our passage. Everything that he will do is characterized by love to his people. Having loved them, he loved them to the end. His steadfast love endures forever. Forever. And here his love takes the form of washing their feet, which is a good and beautiful act of service in itself, but which is also uh, symbolic of his saving love. It means something more than just wiping dirt and grime off of their feet. It's symbolic of his saving love as he will teach them. So in any culture, really, washing another person's feet is unusual. Right? It's a little awkward when people are taking off their shoes and touching each other's feet. That's, that's unusual in any culture, I think. Uh, and in that culture specifically, and even maybe officially, it was considered such a humiliating work that only the lowest slaves would do it. Only the lowest slaves would wash feet. So Jesus, of his own accord, he isn't asked to do it, of his own accord, he enters that place. And he serves his disciples in this way. And the story slows down to focus our attention on his actions. And it doesn't just say, Jesus loved them, and so he washed their feet, and then he told them what it meant. It slows down. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments He took a towel, he tied it around his waist, he poured water into the basin, and he began to wash the disciples' feet and then to wipe them with the towel that was his loincloth wrapped around him. Jesus is deliberate, uncomfortably so, if you can picture yourself in this situation. He he undresses. He wipes their feet with his slave loincloth. I probably would have had about the same response as Peter when his term, turn came around. Lord, wait, you're going to wash my feet? No, no, no. Um, no, just give me the basin and I can wash my own feet. If, if clean feet is uh, important here at this meal, um, I, could, I could do it myself. Just put the, put the water there. I'll take care of it. Let's not be awkward here. Right? Um, there's, there's something about this that strikes Peter as uh, terribly difficult to receive, actually maybe as inappropriate. Inappropriate. But Jesus doesn't explain himself in order to make Peter more comfortable. He doesn't sit down and give the lecture first. Right? In fact, he indicates that Peter is to allow Jesus to do what he wants to do, 
even though he doesn't understand it. He's to allow it. Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will. You will understand. So this probably means not not just that he's going to understand the full significance of it when Jesus, you know, sort of the next paragraph when Jesus starts to explain things. It probably means that the significance of Jesus' action here will make uh, will make full sense or more sense anyway <clears throat> to Peter after his own death and after his resurrection, when Jesus sends the Spirit to help his disciples make sense of everything that he's done and said to, to understand the gospel. He's saying that the foot washing is a picture of his gracious love to them. And it's a picture of his becoming a slave to his people for their sake. His love is something Peter is to receive before it makes real sense to him. Have you ever thought about the love of Christ that way? That it's something that you receive before it really makes sense? sense to you, certainly before you can start to imitate it, you receive it. And like Jesus said, Peter doesn't get it. He resists what he doesn't understand here about Jesus' action. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. It's pretty final the way that he says that. It's like saying, into eternity, you will never wash my feet. He forbids it. It's too awkward. It's too personal. It's wrong. Maybe maybe Peter felt ashamed that Jesus would come so close to him. I mean, Jesus undresses and wraps this towel around him and comes as a slave to him. This is all backwards. This is not how things work. If anything, Jesus has the right to command Peter to wash his feet. Right? That would make sense. Peter might not want to do it. He'd grit in his teeth while he obeyed that command because it's so humiliating. But at least it would be the proper order of things, the student serving the master, the teacher. But Jesus knows that Peter doesn't understand the proper order of things. Peter doesn't understand the proper order. It's Peter's thinking that's backwards. It's Peter's discomfort That's all wrong. Peter needs Jesus to serve him in ways that only Jesus knows. You need Jesus to serve you in ways that you do not understand that only Jesus knows. Now Jesus is speaking of more than just... uh, the washing of his feet, he says, Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. He's not just talking about if I don't clean your feet right now. It's a bigger picture. This this foot washing is pointing to something bigger about who Jesus is and what it means to, to be with him, to participate in his life. You have no share with me if I don't wash you. Right? So he's speaking of more than just the washing of his feet. He's pointing to that great washing that we all need, that true sanctification, that true making holy, that true cleansing that Jesus came into the world to give us through his sacrifice, through pouring out his life at the cross for us. Jesus made himself our slave 
to perform a service that no one wanted, that no one understood. He went to the cross to die as a criminal in our place, which is our true purification. It's a washing that no one thought they needed. And he hints at this by coming to the disciples now as their utter slave. You can't go lower than this. And says that we must allow him to do that, to be our slave, to serve us if we're to have share with him, if we're to participate in his life with God. If you're to be saved, Jesus has to serve you, which is the very reason he came into the world. He is willing to serve you. You must allow it, even though you don't understand that. Peter still doesn't understand what Jesus means by all this, and he wouldn't until the Holy Spirit came, and even then he'd still act like a bonehead. Every now and then, Lord love him, and the Lord does love him. So Peter's probably afraid that, um, that he's going to miss out on something big, right? He's probably that he doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about. He's just afraid, I, I don't want to miss out. He gets a little over-enthusiastic. He blurts out, not my feet only, but my hands and my head also, right? Um, Give me all you got. Go to town. I want the works complete. Makeover. Whatever you, whatever you got to do, right? Everything. Um, Jesus is patient. Jesus is gracious. Jesus is maybe a bit humorous. You already took a bath, Peter. You just need me to wash your feet, okay? Right? But I think he's saying a little something more than that. Maybe there is humor wrapped up there, but I think he's saying, Peter, you don't know what you need. Don't presume to tell me what you need. Let me tell you what you need. My cleansing that I'm offering you the specific and particular shape of it, my cleansing is what you need, and it will make you completely clean, and I'll do it. I'll do it. In fact, he cleanses them by his very word, and what he says becomes their reality. You are clean. You are clean. He declares it. But not every one of you. And so he's talking about Judas, and we're going to talk more about him next week can't just fit it all in right now, so we're going to basically set Judas aside <laughs> till next week. Um, but he says, you are clean, he says to his disciples, to his people. You are clean if you allow Jesus to cleanse you. If you receive the washing that he says you need. If you accept his service and his purification of you that cost him his life at the cross, he cleanses you of your sins. He removes them from God's sight so that you can stand clean before God, spotless, pure, as if you had never sinned or been a sinner, as if you had perfectly done life as a human, just like Jesus has perfectly done life as a human. And this is his service to you. This is his service to you. You don't serve him in order to get saved. That's not how this relationship works. You don't serve him. You let him serve you. Jesus said about himself in Mark 10 that he came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that doesn't make sense to the world. It barely makes sense to all of us Christians sitting here. That he came to serve us and to give his life. And that's what his service would look like. Proper order dictates that those of low status serve those of higher status. That's how the world works. And that's like Peter thought. The student should serve the master, not the other way around. But Jesus, he overturns this and he shows us a new order. It's the true order of God's kingdom. It's the way it's always meant to be because of who God is and the way that he made us. But in Jesus' new order, it's the greatest who serve. He says in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That's the way it should be. In this world, it's ruined by our sin, by our self-centeredness, self-aggrandizing. There's a, a ladder that you climb, and you know your place, you know which rung you're on, and you serve those above you, maybe reluctantly, you serve them, and you expect to be served by those below you. But this is not the proper order. Jesus brings us the proper order from God himself. Leslie Newbegin, it's a quote, I'm not going to read it all to you from the beginning of the bulletin there, but he points out that the, the natural order that we all understand by our nature as, as sinful human beings, it has those on the lower rungs washing the feet of those on the higher rungs, and we naturally conceive of God to be on the top rung served by all. That's how we think about God. But God reveals himself as instead slave of all, the lowest of the low. Stripped down to a loincloth, stooping and bending and kneeling and wiping. He destroys the ladder and all its rungs the way that we conceive of it. He is the Lord. And that means he serves. His lordship means service. To go back to Mark 10. Whoever would be great among you, Jesus said, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So when he saves us, he saves us for a life like his. He saves us to enter into his life, life with him, to have part with him. And it means we become like him. That's what happens when he saves us from ourselves, from our sin, from that ladder, from the vision the world has of what real power and real service means. We become like him after he saves us. He isn't petty. This is no tit-for-tat transaction. He doesn't say, hey, I did something for you. Now you're going to do something for me, right? I washed your feet. Now you're going to return the favor. You're going to wash my feet. That's why I washed your feet, so that you would wash my feet and serve me. That's not what he says. He says, 
I washed your feet, so you go wash each other's feet. I've given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So he's loved you, and now he invites you to live with a love like his toward each other. He has served you, and that's enabled you to become a servant to others. If you belong to Jesus, you may now become more like Jesus. If you've received his love, then you really may reflect his love to others. If you've welcomed his service to you, you've let him be your slave. If you've allowed him to do that terribly awkward thing, cleansing you with his sacrificial love, then you're free to be the slave of others. If you can stand Jesus coming so close to you to serve you, to purify you, then you can stand drawing so close to others, opening your life up to them, to serve them in humility, with intimacy, with a costly, difficult love. If Jesus has undone you and turned your world upside down by serving you, then you should go turn other people's worlds upside down by serving them in ways that uh, they might not initially receive. They might initially reject as inappropriate or unnecessary or awkward or this just doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? Someone who's self-conscious can't do that. Trust me, I know, I'm pretty self-conscious. And it's really hard to serve this way if you're self-conscious. If you're you're self-conscious, you're totally absorbed with how, how I look in this situation. I'm stooping and bending and washing and wiping. What do people think of that? What do people think of me when I'm doing that? then you can never undress, you can never put on a loincloth, you can never get down and wash another person's feet, all symbolically for service. It's too humiliating. But Jesus has undone all that for us. Was humiliation a threat to Jesus? Did it take anything away from him? Did it change anything fundamental about him, about who he is, about his identity? No, he he was absolutely secure in his father's love. There was no self-consciousness, no awkwardness for him. He's God-conscious. He made himself a slave and he washed his disciples' feet, as it says at the beginning of our passage, knowing that the father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. He knew that. His humble service rose from the depths of who he is and from his relationship with God, the beloved, he's the beloved, he's the one who has everything in his father's love. He knows his life to be anchored in God. He knows that he's returning to God. He's absolutely secure in his identity as the son of God. And nothing can threaten that and nothing can take it away, not humiliation, not service. In fact, it's in that fullness of knowing who he is in relationship to God That's how he hung naked, dying on a cross, mocked and scorned and spit upon by everybody. Not self-conscious. God-conscious, filled with all the fullness of God. His humiliation didn't take anything from him. He was willing to 
enter this humiliation because he is the fullness of God in human form. Fullness. And if you've let him wash you, if you let him come to you and not just wash your feet, your soul through that unbearably awkward service that's done at the cross, then you've let him humiliate you with his love. That's humiliating. It's painful. It's difficult to receive love like that. You've let him turn your world upside down. You've let him bring a new order to your life. That's raw love. That's raw love, being humbled by the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. But here's what it means for you now to imitate him. Now, now your service, your service of others, your humiliation, it's an opportunity to know Jesus. It's an opportunity to get to know what it's like to love as he loves and to participate in his life. It says if you've, known, if you've known real love in Jesus, then you're blessed to follow his example. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, he says. If you allow this, then you'll have part with me. Then you'll share in my life. And if you know what this means, you'll be blessed if you do them. We get to know him more as we act like him in this world. And that's the real privilege. Knowledge of him is the real blessing. So when you serve others, it could be uncomfortable. I mean, we're not talking about, you can't do this in the virtual world, right? You can't do this just through social media. You've got to wrench your eyes away from the computer screen and get into real relationships where you're in the room with people talking. And that can be hard in and of itself, right? But when you serve others, it can be uncomfortable. You share the gospel with other people who don't think they need such desperate help as all that. That can be awkward. It can be awkward and uncomfortable talking to people that the world says they exist on lower rungs than you do socially, right? Foreigners, prisoners or criminals, beggars, children. That can be awkward, talking to people. It can be awkward visiting the sick. It can be uncomfortable visiting them and those who are in need, those who are used to self-sufficiency, who could take care of themselves, usually, normally, right? who don't need help. It can be awkward dressing their wounds and cleaning their toilets. But we can do these things joyfully from a place of spiritual fullness. It's not like we're trying to achieve our salvation by doing these things, to get right with God by doing these things. We do it from a place of fullness because we know we've already received such service and more from Jesus himself. And and all such service is an opportunity to share in his life. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray that these would not be empty words, that they would not fall upon deaf ears, but that your spirit would do the work that only you can do in um, making us able to receive this love from Jesus, to be able to look at him as he hung naked on the cross, dying to cleanse us from our sins, and not to walk away, not to shy away, not to avert our gaze but to stand and look and receive your love and, um, and your service come through the slave, Jesus, 
who's Lord and Master of all. We pray that you would uh, rework us and our lives in his image and make us able and willing to serve as Jesus has served us, that we would serve others in his name and with his very love, participating in his life. And um, we don't even know what that means. We've been so used to uh, avoiding service in these ways, avoiding making ourselves slaves to others. We pray that you would grant us eyes to see these opportunities and hearts that are willing to go into these places because they've been filled with all the fullness of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.